The camera light blinks occasionally, but after a while you'll eventually forget it's there. But it's watching. Everything you do, everything you say, is recorded by the unobtrusive observer. And just when you think you've managed to get away with it, it's there, ready to reveal the truth. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 146, The Murder of Jacques Duplessis. Now it's time for my monthly tip about the latest series to watch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on TV. And from Monday the 26th of February, the channel will exclusively premiere Season 2 of The Truth About My Murder. In this eye-opening and revealing original 10-part series, we join best-selling author and renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Richard Shepard as he separates fact from fiction to uncover what really happened behind some of the most intriguing and chilling homicides in recent British and American history. You can watch The Truth About My Murder every weeknight at 7pm from Monday the 26th of February until Friday the 8th of March, only on DSTV Channel 170 and Starset 222. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Nicole Oxton and ET007 for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. Today's episode is an intimate partner murder. But rather than us seeing the usual dynamic of a significantly abusive and controlling relationship leading up to murder, we see the type of relationship that is not uncommon for many, many couples. 
extremely toxic and really just not healthy for either partner. But for some reason, it persists and the relationship is not ended so that both parties can heal. Instead, the toxicity continues to poison the environment, fueled by substance abuse, and in this case, it ends in murder. When one partner decides they're going to take the ultimate action to end the relationship. In researching this episode, I used court documents from the trial and insights from the psychologist who testified in the trial, Dr. Gerard Labaskakni. Dr. Labaskakni has also covered this case on his podcast, Profiler Africa, and I highly recommend listening to that after this episode for a fresh perspective closer to the case. So let's get into episode 146, The Murder of Jacques Duplessis. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Sometimes difficult to figure out the maiden names of women involved in cases, especially if there's been no reporting that includes it. It's probably not super important, but I do pride myself on always trying to get the facts right. So as far as I can tell, the maiden name I've sussed out for the woman involved in this case is correct. Mariska Lawrence was born in Rustenburg. She was the youngest of three girls, and when she was in grade eight, her parents divorced. They each remarried. Before the divorce, the family had lived in three different provinces, eventually ending up in Kempton Park, Gauteng. Mariska had struggled with her mental health for much of her childhood and teenage years. She'd lived with depression and there were suicide attempts in her teenage years as well, as well as an eating disorder. The disruption of the divorce would not have helped this, of course, but Mariska's parents did get her into therapy. She spent a month in a psychiatric facility and also continued to have individual therapy occasionally. Mariska struggled to cope at school, so in grade 10 she left and started homeschooling. She then went to live with her father and went back to formal schooling, eventually matriculating in 1999. While she was in school, she started her first relationship, which would last six years. When she matriculated, she moved in with this partner, and the relationship continued until around 2003. In 2004, through a work friend, Mariska met Jacques Duplessis. Jacques had been a paramedic in the South African National Defence Force from 1994 to 2004. He just started working as a pool pump salesman when he and Mariska met. Jacques had a tragic background with relationships. He'd married quite young, but his first wife had been killed in a car accident while he was driving, just a year after they tied the knot. This had had a deep impact on Jacques, and he'd often self-medicated with substances to rid himself of the guilt he felt. Both he and Mariska had used drugs in their past, including ecstasy, cats and marijuana. Both also often drank to excess. 
Mariska would eventually be diagnosed with bipolar type 2 disorder as well as borderline personality disorder. It seems that she was intermittently on medication for the bipolar condition over the years, but stopped and started on it, which is very common. Mariska and Jacques' relationship was strained and the and on and off from the beginning. Mariska would later admit that alcohol was a huge part of their problem, and she'd also found it difficult to accept that Jacques was not very interested in sex or being intimate in any way, and they often would only be intimate when they were both under the influence. Mariska had wanted to move in with Jacques, but he was reluctant. In 2005, they did move in together, and by 2007, Mariska had fallen pregnant. The pregnancy was not planned, but both seemed to embrace it, and in 2009, when their new son was just over a year old, the couple married. Jacques had been struggling to find and keep work throughout the years, and this had become a constant fight with the couple, those around them would say. Many felt that Mariska would bully Jacques and mock him, making him feel worse about the fact that he wasn't contributing financially at times. Mariska had worked at the same company for many years and had a stable income, but Jacques couldn't seem to hold down a job. Between 2011 and 2015, Mariska was treated by a specialist psychiatrist. When this doctor's notes were later checked, there was no mention of any issues within her marriage or instances of abuse. Mariska was, however, talking to other people about her relationship with Jacques, and some of her friends, a work colleague, a physiotherapist, and a psychologist she'd started seeing did say that Mariska had mentioned instances of abuse in her marriage. The psychologist she started seeing in 2015 would later claim that Mariska had told him that her husband was abusive, and through their therapy, she was growing strong enough to leave him. Unfortunately, the psychologist would later be absolutely pulled through the ringer in court, and it would be shown that his consulting notes were very sparse, and contained no mention of incidents of abuse. More on this psychologist's actions and claims later, although it may be pertinent to mention here that some would later point out that the specialist psychiatrist Mariska had seen, who had no indicators of any marital issues or abuse, was female, while the latter psychologist mentioned, who believed Mariska was definitely a victim of abuse, was male. Those who mentioned this as being important felt that Mariska, being a very attractive woman and also had quite a flirtatious nature, and often found it easy to manipulate some men. Some wondered whether this was why the male health professional had a very different view than the female professional. Of course, it could also just be that Mariska was more comfortable with the psychologist than the psychiatrist. That happens a lot. Not everyone gels with all mental health practitioners, and it can change the type of information that comes out in a session. Even though Mariska's relationship wasn't great, her job still gave her some good experiences. She travelled overseas and throughout the country, and did well financially. 
During the times that Jacques wasn't working, she gave him money, and their finances were always separate, with her retaining control of her own money. The couple had moved to a house in Henley-on-Clip. Mariska's mother and stepfather lived in the same area, and she regularly visited with her mom, taking her son with while Jacques stayed at home. As is so often the case, people in the Duplessis couple's life had different views of each of them from the perspective of the time they spent with them and the nature of those interactions. Those who knew Mariska only knew of Jacques what they were told by her, and vice versa. Family members on Mariska's side felt that their relationship was not happy, but none of them knew about any abuse. They knew that Mariska could be quite sharp-tongued, especially when she drank. While they realised the relationship was far from ideal, her family didn't see it as possibly dangerous to either party. Since the couple had moved to Henley on Clip, Jacques had become very involved in the community policing forum and had many different security devices installed at the home, including CCTV cameras in certain areas, including the kitchen, entrance hall and garden area. Through his involvement with the CPF, Jacques had also become friendly with their next-door neighbours. This couple had spent many nights at the Duplessis home, and the male of the couple would later offer his view of the interactions between Mariska and her husband. He said he noticed whenever they went over for a braai, everything would be fine until Mariska got to a certain level of intoxication, and then something seemed to change within her, and she became very nasty and verbally abusive toward Jacques. According to him, although Jacques would respond to her verbal attacks, he always did so level-headedly, and claimed never to have seen any physical abuse between the pair. He went on to say that he believed Jacques was such a gentle man that there was no way he could ever be physically aggressive. This man would be quite shocked by what he was later shown on a recording from the CCTV cameras in the Duplessis home, and likely changed his view on the impressions he formed of people going forward. Mariska and Jacques often disagreed about how to raise their son. Mariska preferred a gentler method, while Jacques felt that he had been raised with hidings as punishment and that worked better, and they never reached a compromise on this. While the Duplessis couple, by all accounts, drank alcohol every night of the week, weekends were particularly heavy, and on Friday the 23rd of June 2017, both Jacques and Mariska had had a long, tiring week and wanted to relax in their usual way, with quite a few drinks and a braai at home. The disagreement started quite early in the night when Jacques had given their son a hiding. When Mariska found out, she railed at her husband. The argument soon shifted from this to other topics, and in the way people have when they've had too much to drink, much of the arguments didn't follow a clear thread. CCTV footage would be a huge piece of evidence in this case, and it showed both Mariska and Jacques almost equally contributing to continuing the disagreement and riling each other up. 
The pertinent scenes to the crime start at 10 p.m. that night. Jacques is seen regularly walking into the kitchen, getting beer out of the fridge and emptying ashtrays. He becomes increasingly unsteady on his feet as he drinks more and more beer. In the background, Mariska is shouting insults and orders at Jacques from another room. She regularly calls him a dronkhat, an Afrikaans insult basically meaning a drunkard. Occasionally, she tells him to get out of her house. In one scene, Mariska and Jacques are in the kitchen together, and Jacques seems to try very clumsily and oddly to de-escalate the situation by smacking Mariska on the bum in what looks like a playful manner. Of course, perspective is everything, and what looks like playful and a little ridiculous from a drunk person to the viewer may actually be a demeaning act from the context of the couple. Mariska continues to swear and tell Jacques to get out of her house, though. She then threatens to phone the police. It's clear that Mariska is still very angry about the hiding Jacques gave their son, and she tells her husband that she's going to report him. Now, it's important to note that, again, the matter of corporal punishment on children, at least at that time, was still a matter of perspective. While a decision had been passed in 2017 to outlaw corporal punishment within the home, it was only officially made illegal in 2019. But there are many people who believe it is morally wrong, and Mariska was clearly one of those people. How to punish children is a common disagreement between couples. But their son, at this point, was already in his late primary school years, and one would have thought that they'd ironed out their differences on this by now. Clearly, like a lot of other matters in their relationship, it was simply swept under the rug, only to reappear under the influence. At one point on the footage, it looks as though Jacques is thinking about leaving. He's seen on the garden camera, and Mariska follows him, shouting that he mustn't take her car. Later, he wanders back inside. At 11pm, Mariska phones 10111, the police emergency number. She's heard on the phone telling officers that her husband is attacking her and her son. She gets off the phone, but the police never arrive, and Jacques starts to taunt her about the police not coming. With both back inside, they're seen in the kitchen, where a physical altercation is caught on camera. Words are exchanged, and Mariska grabs Jacques around the neck. He pushes her, and she falls to the floor. He walks out of the frame. Mariska lies on the floor for a minute, and again it may just be viewing it from the perspective of what comes next, but it really does seem as though a decision is made there. Something changes in her posture as she stands up and walks out of the kitchen. The couple cannot be seen on camera at this point, but they can be heard. Jacques calls Mariska a slut and then tells her to kick him in the testicles again. He then tells her that he has bite marks all over him. 
It's clear that some form of physical attack is continuing in the next room, but there is no way of knowing who is doing what, except from the audio that's heard. Occasionally, Mariska is heard shouting that she swears she's going to kill Jacques if he doesn't leave. Another physical altercation is caught on camera, where Mariska is seen biting Jacques, and at one point he pins her to the ground for about a minute while she wriggles beneath him. Both Jacques and Mariska's verbal abuse escalates. He calls her a crazy alcoholic. She tells him he is worth nothing. Then, everything goes quiet for a while. Eerily so. At five minutes past eleven that night, the cameras pick up the audio of a rifle being discharged. Mariska is heard screaming Jacques' name over and over. She's then seen moving around the house, and soon she's on the phone to police again. This time, she tells the 10111 operator that her husband has been shot by an intruder. After getting off the phone with police, Mariska goes next door to the neighbours they're friendly with. She tells them that Jacques left the front door open and someone walked in off the street and shot him. She asks if they can come and see if they can help while she waits for the police. She's also not sure if the killer or killers have actually left the property, she says, and she's afraid. The neighbours follow her to the house and find a scene of horror in the lounge. Jacques Duplessis was very clearly deceased. He was laying face down between a desk and an office chair. It looked as though he had been seated to perhaps do something on the computer, and he'd just started to stand up when he'd been shot. Ballistics would later show that this was correct, as a void would be seen on the wall in the shape of Jacques' head, surrounded by shrapnel from the rifle shot. He was facing away from the shooter when he was shot, in the back of the head. The shot exiting the front of his head had caused huge damage to his face, and he died almost immediately. Over the next few hours, the cameras continue to record as police arrive, forensic officers work the scene, and Jacques' body is finally removed. Mariska and her son go to the neighbor's house, and then they're collected by her family. The neighbor receives the property keys back from the police at 2 a.m. Over the next few days, police open a case of murder, and Mariska, for the most part, continues to insist that her husband was murdered by intruders. Soon, though, the investigating officer receives a telephone call from an attorney representing Mariska Duplessis. We don't know exactly why Mariska decided to confess, but it's very likely she thought about the CCTV and realised that no one would be seen entering the property and the police would see and hear the events of that night. Within three days, Mariska Duplessis was at back at the home where her husband had been killed. Now, she was performing a pointing out of where she'd retrieved her rifle from. It was hidden underneath her mattress. She'd retrieved it and approached her husband from behind, 
shooting him as he stood up. Then she'd put the rifle back under her mattress. The rifle was not registered, so in addition to murder, Mariska was charged with the illegal possession of a firearm and ammunition and attempting to obstruct the administration of justice. It seems that it would take quite a while for the truth about Jacques' death to filter out to the couple's friends and family, because in the days and weeks after his murder, Mariska continued to post on social media about her husband's death, and no one seemed to know that she'd actually pulled the trigger. Although Mariska was arrested and charged, she was released on bail pending the start of her trial, and slowly it became clear that her defence was going to be that years of abuse at the hands of her husband had resulted in her feeling as though her only way out of the situation was to kill him. The term used to describe what Mariska and her attorney were trying to put forward is battered woman syndrome. Now, Battered woman syndrome is not actually a legal defense, and Mariska's own lawyer would concede to the judge that although they were pleading not guilty, they were not doing so in the hopes of using mental incapacity as a defense. Because battered woman syndrome is not a legal defense, at least not yet, the best they could hope for in even mentioning it was to gain serious mitigation in sentence perhaps enough to have the judge hand down an extremely light sentence, such as time served, which has happened in a few cases in the US. Just as battered woman syndrome cannot be used as a legal defense in South Africa, it's also not a diagnosable mental health condition in the DSM. Rather, it is a way to describe a group of symptoms that appear in a woman who has been living in an abusive relationship. Although it usually comes up in a legal context, it also doesn't mean that the person has necessarily done anything criminal. The symptoms often align with those of PTSD sufferers and include intrusive recollections of the trauma events, hyperarousal and high levels of anxiety, avoidance, behavior, and emotional numbing, usually expressed as depression, disassociation, minimization, repression, and denial, negative alterations of mood and cognition, disrupted interpersonal relationships from the batterer's power and control measures, body image distortion and or somatic or physical complaints, and sexual intimacy issues. Learned helplessness is central to the development of battered woman syndrome and is a concept that is often found in survivors of long-term abusive relationships, regardless of the nature. Essentially, it means that the victim becomes so convinced by the repeated abuse that they are unable to stop or escape the behavior that this becomes their default setting to life, and they may begin to believe that they are completely helpless in the world without their abuser. Another aspect that's looked for when identifying situations that may result in battered woman syndrome or learned helplessness is the three-phase cycle of abuse that repeats itself over and again in these situations. The first phase involves a gradual build-up of tension 
where the abuser will engage in name-calling, seemingly small but purposeful acts against the victim, and possibly physical abuse. The victim will respond by trying to placate the abuser in any way they can to avoid escalation. The second phase is when the abusive incident is inevitable, despite any actions having been taken by the victim to avoid it. In this phase, the victim may try to control where and when the abuse incident takes place in order to minimize damage and pain. The abuser stopping the incident is the only thing that ends this phase. The third phase is when the abuser tries to mitigate what they've done by apologizing to and love-bombing the victim in order to keep the victim in the relationship. This part of the abuse cycle usually makes the victim feel that the abuser is finally returning to the person they loved and that the cycle of abuse will end. The cycle begins to repeat shortly after this phase completes. There is no set length of time to any of these phases, and it differs between relationships. Sometimes each phase will be just days long, and in other cases the first phase can be the longest, for instance lasting years, with the second and third phases being very brief. The aspects of the abusive relationship that allows the abuser to retain control over the victim include isolation from friends and family, extreme control over the movements of the victim, financial control to further reduce freedom, extreme jealousy around any interactions the victim has with other people, especially members of the opposite sex or the gender to which the victim is attracted, and sexual abuse is also frequent, with the abuser using sex as a way to establish their dominance and ownership of the victim. Rape and forcing the victim to commit demeaning acts they have not consented to are common. The state had originally led its case in Mariska's trial by presenting its evidence of her guilt of the murder which included all the forensics and Mariska's admission that she had fired the gun that had killed her husband. They then rested their case. The defence's main witness was Mariska's psychologist, who claimed they had identified significant enough abuse in the relationship to constitute battered woman syndrome. Thankfully, the prosecutor in this case had a good amount of knowledge around psychological evidence and was able to cross-examine the psychologist very effectively. Essentially, what emerged is that the psychologist was attempting to claim that Mariska had reported continued abuse throughout her relationship, and that he had seen the traits of battered woman syndrome and learned helplessness within her. Perhaps the most powerful point against this was the complete lack of proof the psychologist could offer around his claims, at the time that he was seeing Mariska, the psychologist was seeing about 40 patients a week. His notes did not include any of the information he presented in court about allegations of abuse, him seeing Mariska as living with learned helplessness, or any of the control tactics he claimed to have been made aware of. At one point, the psychologist even mentioned an incident of rape, which he remembered her telling him about, which he quickly retracted, 
as at that point he was not actually sure if he was thinking about the right patient. And this is precisely why his testimony was eventually rejected by the court. Despite seeing 40 different patients a week and having very sparse notes on Mariska's treatment, he claimed to have noted these incidents in his memory. It was very clear that the psychologist was either totally out of his depth in court or he was trying to tailor his evidence to fit what the defendant required. In addition to his testimony being found not trustworthy by the court, the man would also eventually undergo a hearing through the Health Professionals Council of South Africa for misconduct, and he was found guilty. The prosecutor had enough knowledge of the abuse cycle from previous cases she'd prosecuted to also question the psychologist about patterns of behaviour that would call those claims into question. Mariska's life, her freedoms, her access to finances, her travels and her deep relationships with family and friends simply did not fit with what has been seen as standard behaviour in abusive relationships and indeed the criteria for battered woman syndrome. After a gruelling cross-examination, the defence asked the court for an option to change their plea. The state then said that if she was going to change her plea, they would like the opportunity to reopen their case. It seems at this point, at least from my view, that the state realised that although the battered woman syndrome was not going to lead to a not guilty judgment, it may in some way seriously mitigate the sentence, especially if Mariska pled guilty, and then they would need an opportunity to negate this in their case. Because the state was reopening its case, and the defence could have no idea what further information they might present, they decided not to officially change the plea, but did make the following statement on record. Quote, The accused admits that her act in, in the shooting of the deceased was unlawful. The accused further admits that she had no legal right or permission to act as aforesaid in her shooting of the deceased. End quote. In reopening their case, the prosecutor called an expert witness who she'd worked with several times before, Dr. Gerard Labaskagny. Labaskagny would go on to provide a detailed report explaining battered woman syndrome. He did extensive interviews with the accused and others, and when the trial resumed, he presented his expert opinion to the court on the matter. Labaskagny found that while the relationship between Mariska and Jacques was undeniably unhealthy in many ways, and there was abusive behaviour from both parties, the circumstances around the relationship could not fit the criteria of battered woman syndrome. He believed that alcohol had played a major role in the crime, as did the specific disagreements on the night of the murder and how each party contributed to the disagreement. He could not find that Mariska had suffered from learned helplessness and that killing Jacques could have been her perceived only way out of the relationship. Certainly, in comparing this case to some others internationally, where women have used abuse successfully as a defence or mitigating factor, the circumstances around the relationship, the crime and the behaviour afterwards were very different to what's seen in successfully argued cases.
In eventually finding Mariska guilty of the murder, the judge would say that there were other ways for her to have ended the relationship without resorting to murder. And even though, in cases of abuse, these other alternatives are not always clear to victims because of learned helplessness and coercive control, Mariska was clearly not suffering from these afflictions at the time of the murder. The murder was not premeditated, though, and I think that is clear for anyone to see. It was most certainly a culmination of a long period of extreme toxicity combined with substance abuse, and added to that Mariska's own mental health challenges. It's unlikely that Mariska wanted Jacques dead, and perhaps in her own mind, the other alternatives were muddled and not clear because of all the other challenges she faced. And while some might understand that, and may even have come close to that mindset in their own lives, it's not a legal defence for murder. Mariska Duplessis was sentenced in 2019 to 10 years imprisonment for the murder and additional years for the firearm crimes and the obstruction of justice charge, which would be served concurrently. If she has not already been considered for parole, she likely will be this year. Although, I do wonder whether she may have launched an appeal to the sentence and was allowed to be out on bail while that happened, because she continued to post on social media until 2021. I cannot find any proof that she appealed, though, or why she would have not been incarcerated immediately after being found guilty. A few months after she was sentenced in 2019, she became engaged to a new partner. I think in cases like this, it would be easy to say that it has to be one or the other. For instance, she either had to be so abused that she saw no other way out, or she had to have been a cold and calculated murderer. And I don't think either is true here. If I've learned anything, it's that the human mind is a vast grayscale of perception, and every single individual's own story is unique. Just like we can't say that bullying of a child, for instance, plays no role in a school shooting because the bullying was not severe or prolonged enough in our mind, we can't say that a specific level of abuse, whether one-sided or from both sides, was not severe enough to have in some way impacted a person's mode of thinking. And this is absolutely in no way a legal or moral excuse for murder. But just because you or I, living in our minds free of mental health challenges or substance use issues, would not dream of raising a rifle to someone's head, doesn't mean that same level of perception exists in someone else's mind. Really, it's what makes the human mind so fascinating. Two things are undeniably true, though. Jacques Duplessis did not deserve to die. And also, there is another victim here who undoubtedly suffered terribly through this. The couple's son. The young boy had grown up in a home where there was constant fighting. Then that night, he possibly heard his father get shot, had to deal with all that fallout, and then 
still see his mother found guilty and imprisoned. I can't even imagine what that young man has been through. Jacques is not to blame for his own murder. Let's make that very clear. But I think his death is a warning to all of us that as soon as a relationship degenerates to the point of verbal and or physical abuse and one or both parties is still in a place where separation is an option, that option should absolutely be taken. We often think situations like this are not that bad. It's just some insults, a few pushes and shoves, Some minds even normalize it to themselves as part of a so-called passionate relationship, especially if that's what they've grown up around. But it's not. And not that bad can turn deadly in the blink of an eye. Jacques Duplessis, rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.